0: LinkedIn Presents.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea.
0: Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking.
1: I've been thinking lately about this song, written by Charlie Chaplin, of all people, and made famous by Nat King Cole. Listen to the lyrics.
0: If you smile through your fear and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow, you'll see the sun come shining
1: through. It kind of sums up the modern American disposition, what Susan Cain calls our culture of normative sunshine. And yet, with no disrespect to Charlie and Nat, I can't help but wonder, has that compulsory cheer always served us? Sometimes when our hearts ache, isn't it okay to just let them ache? Listen to the song on repeat, as I've been doing lately, and you realize that what makes it so marvelous isn't the message of hope, it's the longing in Nat's voice, the way he sings like a man who can't banish his despair. Just smile. After a few plays, I found myself asking, what do we lose when we avoid sorrow and chase empty delights, when we mask our pain by performing optimism, when we profess to have no regrets and insist on turning every frown upside down? I'm not alone in wondering these things. They've been top of mind for two of my favorite people, two people who also happen to be curators here at The Next Big Idea, Susan Kane and Daniel Pink. In their new books, Susan's is called Bittersweet, Dan's is the power of regret. They give the negative emotions, sorrow, longing, and regret their beautiful due. My colleagues and I love these books so much, we sent signed copies to everyone with The Next Big Idea Club hardback subscription. And over the next few weeks, Susan and Dan are gonna be doing something extraordinary for all of our club members, participating in exclusive Q and A's, creating e-courses. And on top of all that, they were kind enough to carve out time to join me on the show today. Every week I get to talk with brilliant people on this podcast, but I don't often get them to talk with each other. That's one of the reasons the conversation you're about to hear is so special. Susan and Dan swap notes on the writing process, share what they've learned from each other, and imagine a future where instead of disparaging negative emotions, we embrace them.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
1: Susan Kane and Dan Pink, what a treat to have not one, but two Next Big Idea Club curators on the show. I really relished my recent conversations with each of you. And, and now uh, I don't know what we've done to deserve this honor. This is like a double stuffed Oreo. Bad metaphor, because both of your books are nutritious. Thank you for taking time out of your morning to join us on the next Big Idea podcast.
2: Thank you, Rufus. Always
1: good to be with you and Susan.
3: Thank you so much, Rufus, two of my favorite people. So
1: this is fantastic. So you both have wonderful new books out in recent months. From Dan, we have The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. From Susan, we have Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. There are some really interesting parallels between the books. We'll talk more about those later. Let's start with the topic of how you came up with the ideas for these books. I think like as readers, we're all curious. I'm certainly curious about the birthing process. Uh, let's start with you, Susan. You wrote the legendary book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, one of my favorite subtitles. You and I met a few years after you published Quiet, and I remember you telling me that you had no plans to write another book. What changed your mind?
3: I don't know. You know, I, I guess the way that I come up with topics for books is like I'm looking for something that has felt incredibly um important and moving over time. And I'm usually like, when I look at both books, um I think of moments that stand out in my memory that I can't let go for some reason. And usually those moments, You know, most most of life you don't actually remember very much of. So the the moments that really stand out are the ones where I think you're actually onto something and something actually really matters. So with this book, with Bittersweet, you know, there's the moment that I wrote about where um, all the way back in law school when I was in my 20s, I was in my dorm room and some friends were coming to pick me up. in in my room, um, so we could all go to class together. And I was like blasting out my usual minor key music of some kind. And my friends thought that was hilarious. Like, why would anybody be listening to this on full blast? And it was really just a nothing moment in time, except it stayed in my Mm. memory for years. I couldn't stop thinking about that experience of what it was about that music that mattered so much and what in our culture made that such a funny subject of a joke. And I, I I thought about it for decades after, and then it became this book.
2: Did you have books that you were post-quiet, that you were contemplating that you didn't write, that you discarded, that you thought about doing, but didn't pursue? I'm always curious about that.
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I more just have like a bunch of book ideas that are still sitting in my file that I might get to one day. I didn't have a book that I like really started working on and then discarded. Yeah. I, I didn't have that experience. Did did that happen for you? Oh, that did happen for you. I've heard you talk about that, Dan, right?
2: I've discarded so many book ideas over the years. I have a scrap heap of discarded book ideas. I, I guess the reason I ask is that I'm I'm, I'm curious about like um because I've seen I've seen writers get trapped in this. Because writing a book is such a gargantuan pain in the ass. It's like I've seen <laughs> writers get trapped in that they they get seduced by something a topic, an idea early. And then they find themselves committed to writing a book. And then they realize, oh, my gosh, this is a colossal mistake. And so I'm always curious about how do writers figure out what makes the cut and what doesn't make the cut.
3: And do I remember correctly that with The Power of Regret, you were actually pretty far into another book and then you came across the idea of regret and you switched?
2: It's sort of true. I I mean, it is true. I I was on I, I didn't, you know, Being me, I didn't get I wasn't very far along, but I was I was under contract. And and so but 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 I've always found that, again, for whatever this is worth, is that whenever I do a book before I do a book, I do a very long proposal, even though it's possible that you can get, you know, a decent contract, sometimes a very, very good contract with like, hey, here's two pages. I usually write, you know, 30, 40 page proposals, uh, partly as a test of my own interest in a topic. Because for me, my a big fear that I have is being on the hook for writing a book I don't want to write and that I'm not into, because that's just misery. So what happened in this case, to answer Susan's questions, is that I, I had a, what I thought was a pretty good idea for a book, and I was kind of sort of working on it. Uh, and then I had a moment where I realized that I started thinking about this topic of regret. And the catalyst, I think as Susan, I think as Rufus, both of you guys know, the catalyst was that my, our elder daughter graduated from college. And that, that, that marker in life sort of was a kind of a wake up. And I look back and realized that I had regrets. And when I started talking to people about my own regrets, I found that people reacted very robustly. That was curious. And that got me curious. So I put aside this other project and I wrote an entirely new proposal. I wrote maybe a 25-page proposal for this new book, uh, recognizing that it would be a slightly less form of torture if I... <laughs> di- pursue this book rather than the other book but also for the reason that Susan is saying this was a kind of thing that I had a hard time getting out of my head and I think that in some yeah. ways that's the 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 metric that is the standard is that is there something that you just oh my god I can't avoid this thing I I keep not not in a yeah. negative way not ruminating or it, but it's like oh my god I keep seeing it everywhere I keep thinking about this that's usually a mm-hmm. personal signal
3: I'm really curious about this because I actually have the exact opposite feeling about book proposals, which is, I feel like you're you're supposed to write the book proposal before you've done all the actual work of thinking what the book is going to be about. So I end up feeling like it's a mm. big waste of time because... You're meant to write you know 10 20 pages ideally for a good proposal but but by that at that stage of the process, I haven't done all of the research and the thinking and the interviews and all of that. so I, I always feel like I'm gonna have to throw out whatever was in the proposal once I've then done the actual work. So do you do, like do you actually use what's in your proposal later on?
2: I mean I, it's, it's an interesting question I'm gonna guess on this but there's I mean this is a question that actually has an answer If I were to go back and look at the proposal for this book about regret, and then look at what was in the final text of it. If you actually look at the language, I would say maybe the two paragraphs. Certainly, the organization is completely different from what I, what I had envisioned. But let me make the case for this, to, especially to all of you aspiring writers out there. Writing a book proposal is, is, is often an act for yourself. Because if you can't summon the energy and curiosity to write about a topic for 20 pages, you're not going to be able to do it for the, over the course of the multi-year project that is writing a book. I'll, I'll give you one example of it. So years ago, I, I sent my, uh, one December, I sent my wife and our, our kids away. My in-laws live in New Mexico and I banished my wife and our kids to New Mexico. So you guys got to go to New Mexico for two weeks and stay with my in-laws because I have not gotten on court on writing this book proposal and I'm going to write this book proposal, you know, just, and when I, when my family is gone, I live like an animal. I mean, I basically don't <laughs> shave and I work from, from I do, I, I wake up, I start working and I stop working and then go to sleep. And in the, in between, I exercise and then eat out of containers. That's basically my life when my family is not here. And so I said, okay, great. I'm going to give me two weeks. I'm going to write this book proposal. So I sent him away and I called Jessica, my wife, about 10 days later and said, I got some good news and some bad news. Good news. You guys can come home now. Bad news. This isn't a book. But it took me writing that book proposal to realize that there wasn't a there there. And it's possible Mm -hmm. that if I had tried to do like a a two page more glib thing, I would have been on the hook to write something that ultimately there wasn't a there there. So for me, the book proposal is as much about a test of my own interest and my own initial exploration. But partly, it's also just my fear of being on the hook for something that I don't want to work on.
1: I'm curious about to to what extent you talk to friends and Uber drivers and cashiers about, I mean, to what extent do you test these ideas when, when, when they emerge? And one thing I noticed in your case, Susan, is that you spent what seemed like maybe more than a few years sharing all these beautiful poems and, and, and paintings and so on on social media that I thought of as almost like uh, a kind of pinging, you know, emotional sonar checking to to see what kind of response you got from the world and i think you it looked like you got a very strong response to that you know supporting this idea that our attraction to the painful but also beautiful and sublime is powerful for not for not just you but for many people
3: well it's funny that you say that because um another friend when he saw all the the different art and stuff that i was putting on social media he was like wow what a what a genius marketing campaign you're doing in the run up to the book And I was so struck by that because I had not thought of it in those terms at all. And I didn't think of it either the way you just said, Rufus, of like putting out sonar to get people's feedback. It It was more like I was so immersed in the whole vibe of the book and everything that I was talking about that just naturally my social media ended up moving in that direction. And I would begin my writing every day by looking for the art and the poetry and putting it up there. And it was like, that put me in exactly the right headspace I wanted to be in for writing. So that's all that it really was. And in terms of how much do we talk to people. So for me, before I'm thinking about what book I want to do, I actually don't really talk to anybody about it because I don't know if people always give the right feedback. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're moved by something that you feel very deeply, then you kind of know it. You know, and I know with 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 the introversion book, there were a lot of people who said to me at the time, well, that's kind of like an oddball topic. And before that, I had been spending all these years teaching negotiation skills to women. And people were like, that's the book you should do. You should write a book about negotiation. You know, that's a saleable topic. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to do that at all. So for me, it's more like once I'm in the book, then I want to interview a thousand people about it and talk to people that way, but not so much as feedback about whether to do that book in the first place.
1: For both of you, I think these were relatively personal books, right? I mean, certainly, um, I I mean, Dan, looking back at the history of your books, I I don't remember reading as much kind of personal, uh, learning as much about your own life as I did in The Power of Regret. And, and, And Susan, in your case, you really go pretty deep and sharing some of your own personal history, what what was that like? And and, and is this something that 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 you hear about from readers? What has your experience been like going personal with with these recent books?
2: You know, I mean, it, what, what I what i found is that in writing about this topic, everybody not everybody, but a lot of people who talk to me about this want to know about my regrets. So if I go, I mean, you know. It's almost like clockwork. I did I did a, a an event. Um, what was it Thursday? And it's like okay, we had time for questions. And of course, the first question is, "What's your biggest regret?" And I, I think that's I think that's generally a healthy thing. I mean, this is the first time I've written about an emotion, and also this book really is powered by analysis and research, but it's also powered by the individual stories of people whose regrets that I collected. So if I'm going to have other people divulge. biggest regrets. And I'm totally happy talking about, um, about my biggest regrets and, and it helps me, you know, it's, it's, in some ways it's semi-therapeutic. It helps me make sense of things. One of the things that I discovered in this book is the regrets that I was harboring. Once I, once I collected all these regrets from around the world, every regret that I had (laughs) was pretty common. You know, it's like, wow, Dan, you're really not special at all. And, and, that, and there's this kind of a reassuring thing about that. But in, in other books that I've written, I'm trying to think about, there have been things that I have, I've done some first person stuff, but really more in the kind of participant observer form of writing rather than in the personal revelation. And so personal revelation was a little bit harder for me, but it seemed appropriate in this case.
3: So I saw something on social media not long ago, the idea that a writer is someone who's torn between the desire to communicate and the desire to hide. And I really feel that so incredibly strongly. And I especially feel it with the personal stuff that I wrote about in this book. Like I've been trying to write some of that my whole life and at the same time feel incredibly exposed by it. And the most personal part that I wrote about is a a story of my relationship with my mother. And when I first started writing it, that was going to be the opening chapter of the book. I mean, I thought of it as kind of like the emotional fulcrum of everything I was talking about. Um, I ended up like burying it in in chapter four for various reasons, part of it emotional, but part of it just structural to the book. But yeah, like just the other day, I got a, a long, long, long letter from a friend who I've known for quite a long time. And she had had the exact same experience with her mother that I wrote about And we had never known this about each other. Wow. And I get these kinds of letters all the
1: time from people.
3: So yeah, I would say there's a lot of ambivalence, but no regret for uh, going in that direction.
1: It's great when your work can connect you with your own community more closely. I've, I've certainly found that with this podcast, actually, that, it, that it, I've overshared at times, and it's it's helped <laughs> connect. Well, I think that I, th- I think that that what you're saying, Rufus, is actually really
2: interesting, and it's 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 a question yeah. of I mean, it's an interesting question for for writers of where do you seek feedback and what do you do with it, both before the project and after the project. I have a bottomless appetite for hearing people's reactions both before the project, which I'll do because I, I, I sort of have a somewhat social view of, of writing in that I, I actually am happy to talk about stuff I'm working on in advance. That's in part because sometimes people give you useful reactions. It's also in part because talking about it is another way of figuring it out. Talking about it yeah. like this yeah. is different from figuring it out on the keyboard. And so that's a, that's a, that's a helpful exercise. And, and I love getting feedback from readers afterwards because I end up thinking about things that I never thought about before. And I'm always surprised by what takes and what doesn't take. Hmm. And if, you were to, if I were to chart my predictions about what people would respond to deeply and what they would ignore in each book, I would be wrong every single time. There's stuff I thought was yeah. awesome that would just blow the doors off. No one gave a crap. There's other stuff that was almost like a throwaway and like, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing. And one of the things that I do, it's kind of interesting, again, you know, for, for prospective writers out there, is that I always look at the Kindle versions of my books at the most underlined passages. Oh, uh, interesting. That's always, yeah. that's, that's another way more systematically to see what is actually working. And when I look at that, I'm always surprised. So language and ideas that I spend months crafting, pff, no one cares. You know, a sentence that I wrote hung over one Tuesday morning in July, everybody underlines.
3: I'm going to share something else about um, talking to people and ask you a question about that, Dan, which is once I'm actually writing a book, I I think I overdo it really in how many people I talk to and how much research I do. Like I do such a crazy amount of conversations and interviews and everything. And then um, it's fantastic. And at the same time, it makes it really hard to figure out what goes in the book and what gets left on the cutting room floor, and then also how to structure it. So I'm curious, how do you decide how many interviews to do, how much research to do, and do you feel that you end up with much more of a surplus than you needed? Well, I
2: think you have to have a surplus. I don't think there's a, a, a single kind of heuristic to figure that out. For me, what happens is that if I'm doing research... And let's say I'm doing, I'm looking at academic research and I feel like, uh, okay, at this, I I sort of have this, this moment when it's like, okay, I'm hearing the same thing over and over again. The same thing is true in interviews. It's like, okay, that's now that's the fifth time I've heard that. Okay, that's enough there. That's generally how I go about doing those things. You have to be willing to do way more than you need and you have to be willing to do what you do in the service of readers, not in the service of yourself. Case in point, two July's ago, I spent the entire month reading 70 papers on how regret develops in the brain especially among kids all right so there's a lot of research on this and it's it's in neuroscience it's in developmental psychology there's just a shitload of stuff on this and it's fairly interesting but but literally probably 70 papers over the course of a month and then i when i got to writing i realized that i could basically describe it in i think it ended up being like one and a half paragraphs (laughs) yeah that's annoying (laughs) That's annoying, okay? Because I just squandered a month of my time. Now, so that so I so I face a choice. All right, do I try to somehow retrieve those sunk costs and say, you know what, reader, I spent a freaking month on this, and it was challenging, and it was hard, yeah. and time-consuming, and not that enjoyable all the time. Therefore, you are going to sit here and read seven pages about this. All right, or I can say, you know what, reader. I want to serve you. So the truth of the matter is, is that what you need to know in this context from this month of reading is really just one paragraph, you know, so you said basically choosing which pain do I want to inflict pain on the reader over seven pages or do I want to inflict pain on myself for saying, oh, my God, I just wasted an entire month and I flipped a coin and said, I'll punish myself, not the reader.
1: Very generous of you, Dan. Thank you for that.
3: <laughs> I was going to share one thing for prospective writers. One thing that I do at like in sifting through like all the material that I, I end up gathering, whether it's interviews or people's stories or research or whatever, I try to include in the end, the bits that I felt had emotional salience when I first discovered them. So, like, I try to remember, you know, there are certain Hmm. stories that I come across, Hmm. and I remember the emotion that I felt when I first heard the story. And, you know, you might not feel that emotion after you've read it in your notes 17 times later, but if I can remember that the first time I heard it, it blew me away. Or, like, a new piece of research that when I first heard it it was like, wow, I didn't know that was true. Um, You know, later on, you forget the wow, but... Or, or You no longer experience Good the point. wow, yeah. but you can remember that yeah. you first felt it. So I try to include, make a point of including those things.
2: Yeah, that's a great lesson. I mean, sort of remember the wow. I hadn't thought about it that way. It's super useful because it's easy to get, you know, you, you find this remarkable thing and you've lived with it for a few months and it's like, ah, whatever. Everybody knows that. Remember the wow. That's That should, that should be like a, a meme or like a Instagram post or something like that.
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse
4: Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Businessweek, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
2: The learn it all does better than the know it all.
4: Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career.
2: I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion
4: or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's talk about some of the commonalities between your books, because on the one hand, they're they're both very different and and share quite a bit in common, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, you both, as it happens, have ventured valiantly, I would say fearlessly, into subjects focused on negative emotions. In an American culture that is relentlessly positive, you refer to it, Susan, as normative sunshine, a culture of normative sunshine, which, which I can't forget. I love that. I'm curious to know, did it feel like a risk to go into negative emotions?
3: I would say yes, but that I didn't really feel like I had a choice about it. I feel like for whatever reason, like I I, I seem to be drawn to write about subjects that feel kind of vaguely embarrassing in the culture. Like, because I, as a reader, let's say, I always appreciate most the moments when a writer talks about something that I've always felt or noticed, but no one talks about out loud the moment that you have where you're like, oh my gosh, everybody experiences this thing. Mm-hmm. And now the writer has yep. gone and put it really beautifully for me. Those moments to me are so amazing. I I, I think I became a writer because I wanted to do that same thing that I had experienced as a reader. So yeah, it I think it was difficult in that sense, but it was really what I wanted to write about. And in fact, I will tell you, you know, I, I started writing bittersweet As is my way, like seven or eight years ago. That was obviously way pre pandemic. But, you know, like a lot of the coverage Mm. about the book is like, oh, well, you know, this is a book for these pandemic times. And I'm like, no, this is a book for any time because this is what humanity is like. Like humans experience joy and sorrow. That's just how life is. I don't really know. It, It wasn't acceptable to talk about these things. The pandemic, I think, made it somewhat more acceptable, which to me is weird, but true. What about you, Dan?
2: It was definitely a commercial risk, but I was like, okay, whatever. It's like, you know, I think we're often bad at predicting what's a commercial risk and what's going to be a commercial success. I think it's so variable and so random that you just write something that you're proud of and put it out there robustly and see what happens. But definitely, I mean, what I've seen since then is that you're much better off writing something that confirms people's existing biases. There's no question about that. And so, and there was, you know, you know, and even things that challenge people's existing views. So let's take, let's take um, Susan challenging the extrovert ideal. There is a constituency that wants to hear what you're saying. Whereas I think for these books, there isn't a natural constituency out there that wants to believe these things. And so what you're really doing is you're really offering something that is challenging now how do you go about doing that my view for better or worse is that the way you go about doing that is you do that directly and so there's a reason why I have the word regret in giant capital letters in the center of the cover it's like I'm like okay let's 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 take this on and see if we can change minds but changing minds is much harder than simply, Confirming people's existing beliefs, but I, I think you know what you do is is like let's have an argument, let's have an argument, let's try to change the conversation, and that's a difficult thing to do when you you don't have a consti- I don't think there's a constituency for sorrow, and I don't think there's a constituency for regret. I think what we're trying to do is actually say, hey, wait a second, folks, let's think about these things differently, and if you can change a few minds, that is powerful.
3: It's funny. I have a different experience about the natural constituency part, because I, I would say I think there is a natural constituency of people who experience all these emotions, know them to be powerful and even revelatory, and have felt at odds with a culture that tells them that they're not supposed to talk about it. So I feel like the argument is kind of with the culture itself, but not with the individual humans. You know what I mean? Like yeah. There are lots of individual humans who, who experience all this stuff. I thought of Bittersweet as being a really different book from Quiet, but I've been struck by how much the reader mail is is the same of like, oh, this is expressing something I've always felt but didn't want to talk about or didn't have words to talk about or something.
2: It's interesting you say that because I think the the reader mail that I get from this is the longest
3: by yes. far, the length yeah.
2: of the emails – because yeah. what people want to do is they want to testify to their own experience and spill out all of these tales. So, I mean, I see what you're saying. I think it's, a, I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. From my experience with this book is that, you know, I like to pedal uphill. And so a lot of my books have tried to challenge the conventional wisdom, not for the sake of challenging the conventional wisdom, but because I thought that the evidence went against what the conventional wisdom said. What you do get when you change minds, though, is you get a ferocity of devotion. That is different from when you mm, simply confirm yeah. people's existing beliefs. When you change people's minds, when you convert, then you have true believers who want to go out and proselytize and talk about this.
3: You know, I'm, I'm struck by you talking about the long letters that you're getting, because um, one of the first things my agent said to me when I finished Bittersweet, and, and we gave it to somebody in his office who then started talking about her own stories. And, and he said, you always know that your book works when the people who read it tell you their stories and not the stories you've just told them. That really struck me.
1: I agree with that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's also this, this possibility that that uh, you have a whole chapter in your book, Susan, about the emergence of a culture of positivity in the United States Mm -hmm. in, you know, at the turn of the last century. And we've seen at the next big idea club with, with your help, with your curatorial help an emergence of a number of books Uh, that suggests that maybe there's a beginning of a trend here. We had Paul Bloom's The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and The Search for Meaning. Susan, you interviewed Paul for this podcast. Yeah. And Good Anxiety, I think of, by Wendy Suzuki, harnessing the power of the most misunderstood emotion. Do you think that there's a, a kind of sea change, perhaps, towards accepting negative emotions?
3: I do think that's happening. And um, I was actually chatting with a management researcher about this at some point. And he was charting this change or mapping the change onto 9-11. Because he said, suddenly in the wake of 9-11, you suddenly saw like in Harvard Business Review and all these places, lots of articles about compassionate leadership. You know, that suddenly became a thing that was considered worthy to talk about. Whereas like before that, it would have been seen as mushy and soft and woo-woo. And if you think about um, like the word compassion literally means to suffer with someone, you know, it's not just like be nice. It's like actually go into negative emotions in order to join together. I think the foundation has been laid for that ever since the turn of the 21st century. And now in the wake of the pandemic, that's accelerated all the more. So yeah, I, I do think we're in a very different moment. I'm curious what you what you see, Dan.
2: I, I think so. I mean, you identified this in, in your book where you talk about um, you know, positive psychology having a second wave. I think we're 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 grasping for it. We're grasping uh mm-hmm. for a way to integrate positivity in our lives without the performative positivity that is not is ultimately not healthy. And it's interesting. I never thought about 9-11 as the forcing function. To me, I think there might be a collective forcing function in the the rather staggering mental health challenges that you we're seeing especially in adolescents and mm-hmm. young people in this country i mean those numbers are staggering and i think that part of it is a consequence of not equipping people with how to deal with negative emotions first of all not sort of yeah. not not sort of acknowledging or even celebrating that negative emotions are part of life but also recognizing that negative, what one can respond to negative emotions in systematic ways. And so I think what's happened to a lot of young people is that they feel negative emotions, anxiety or sorrow or longing. And I think too many young people have that very normal experience. And then they look around and say, wait a second, everybody else is positive, everybody else is perfect. There must be something wrong with me. And that ends up being debilitating. And so mm-hmm. for this book in contrast to some of my other ones I actually do have a little bit of a mission which is to try to kind of recast and recapture how we deal with negative emotions because it's profoundly unhealthy if we're telling people you should be positive all the time we shouldn't what we should be doing is saying hey life is a mix of positive and negative and knowing how to deal with negative emotions is an important part of flourishing and I think that Susan's book and Wendy's book And um, Paul's book and some of these other things maybe collectively will do what what I was trying to do individually, which is actually let's change this conversation a little bit. Let's change some minds and by changing, you know, and at at the very least try to change some behavior on on this. I have to say, I'll shut up here in a moment. (laughs) Every college administrator I talk to, so I have two kids who just got out of college, one kid who's in college. Every college administrator I talk to had literally... Every single one says, we don't have enough counselors. We don't have enough Mm -hmm. mental health services here. And it doesn't matter whether it's a private university, a public, a big public state university, a small liberal arts college, every single one is saying that. And that is a wake up call for us as parents and as citizens about how do we talk about negative emotions and how do we equip people, especially young people, to deal with negative emotions, surmount them and learn from them.
1: It seems like a lot of the what I've read about this teenage pain and, and sense of hopelessness is, much to my surprise, related to global warming and a sense of kind of serious catastrophes that we're headed towards as a, as a planet. And that leads me to, to wondering, to what extent, if we talk through collectively all these larger macro problems we have, can we have a kind of post-traumatic growth not just individually, but collectively. And we actually had a, had Jane McGonigal on the show a couple of weeks ago, and, and she brought up this notion of post-traumatic growth for society as a whole, coming out of COVID, grappling, you know, worldwide with global warming and other big challenges. It seems to me that these, these benefits of confronting negative emotions also exist for organizations, for companies, for communities, potentially for, for nations.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what happens is an organization is just at the end or a nation or whatever at at the end of the day is just a collection of individuals. So individual behaviors change, individual hearts change, and then the relationships among all those individuals change and pretty soon the organizational culture changes. So as these conversations become more commonplace and more mainstream and moving from social unacceptability to of course we're going to be talking about this and if, of course we're going to be oriented that way social and organizational norms change that 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 one just follows from the other and and I, so i think we're in the we're in the moving process of getting from one place to the other as far as that goes but we still have quite a long way to go
2: it's interesting, yeah. I, I think that's right that we do have have a long way to go. I, I think that what Jane is saying is is actually really really important. That in some ways we've undersold post traumatic growth. That's that was that was a topic that's actually relatively new to me. I, I only heard about it maybe five or six years ago, and I was like, "What? It's not only post traumatic mm-hmm. disorder. You know, that's right. uh, that that people that that people that people can grow from that." I I had this one moment where. Um, uh, I got a press call uh, in the middle of the pandemic from a major magazine, uh, a reporter for a major magazine who wanted to talk about, you know, what was going to happen coming out of the pandemic and how hard it was going to be for people. And um, I don't want to say what magazine it was because that wouldn't be fair to the New Yorker. And the um, and, and the report and I said to the reporter, it's like, you know what? I actually think that people are fairly resilient that there are going to be some people who are going to come out of this stronger, that that they were underestimated. The idea that everyone is going to be collapsed entirely and permanently and enduringly by this pandemic is probably not right, that we might be surprised by the resilience and growth that people in, uh, experience in the midst of this trauma. That was so not what you wanted to hear. Um, and so, you know... The, and the whole story ended up being about how terrible everything is, everything is going to be. So I think that post-traumatic growth individually and collectively is something that we need to take much more seriously. I think it's a very, very promising line of research and a very powerful and transformative idea for, for all of us. Um, beyond that, I mean, I, I I have a slightly different theory. I don't know if it's right about why we have the debilitating effects among young people. Because here's the thing: it's like, okay, yeah, global warming, yeah, that's 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 not good. But the three of us, when we were that age, we had two giant superpowers, armed to the teeth, who could annihilate the planet in the press of a button. All right, that's not good either. All right, that could be a source of angst and 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 negative emotion. Right. So I I don't I don't buy that. I think what's happening is that. When the three of us were that age, when we compared our lives to other people's lives, the universe of people who we could compare it to was relatively small. It was like the circle of people like we we knew and could see. And, but now what you have is you have people who compare their lives to essentially the entire world. And if you do that, someone's always going to be happier than you. Someone's always going to be better looking than you, skinnier than you, more athletic than you, smarter than you, richer than you. And I think that that that's my theory of why this is, you know, a reason why you have these these mental health challenges is that we know that incessant social comparison is bad for us. And now we have a way to compare ourselves to everyone <laughs> and you're going to lose that comparison.
3: No, that's interesting. When, when you said the thing about climate change, Rufus, it, it makes total sense to me, but my instinct also is that it really is the rise of social media that's probably the most painful for younger people. You know, to Dan's point about social comparison, and it's like the social comparison is is combined with this extreme performativeness where no one can actually tell the truth about anything. All you can do is exactly. perform endless self-presentation online. And so you're not, you're not actually even really connecting in any meaningful way. It's just one performed mask relating to another performed mask, that's the antithesis of the connection that actually is really the seed of mental health. So I do think that coming up with some kind of alternative social media that encourages people to just somehow be telling the truth and not performing, I don't know if that requires anonymity, though I do go back to um, what things were like at the very beginning of the internet, like, do you remember that feeling of like, oh, yeah, wow, suddenly there's this place where people can actually really tell the truth because no, one, there was no video, no one knew who anybody else was, so it was this incredible yeah, new way to yeah, communicate, yeah. and all of that has vanished now. But I don't think it's irretrievable. There's got to be an answer.
2: I, I'm, I'm leery about putting all the, the a lot of the blame on social media because I don't I don't think the evidence is quite there yet. Uh, I think it's more just simply. This being um, it just media in general, and that our ability to see into the lives of all these people is probably a bigger, a bigger role. But to Susan's point, I mean there's a there's an app out there that's become very, very popular on college campuses called, I think it's called Be Real. And what it is, is it's it's a non-perform, well, it it aspires to be a non-performative yeah. social media app. What it does is that it will ping you at a certain time, unknown to you in a given day. So I'll get, let's say I'll get a text. i get a, a ping from this. I, I'm not on it, but I'll get this ping at like say 12, 15 PM. And I, at that moment, I have to take a picture of what I'm doing then and post it. The only way I can see what other people are posting is if I post it myself. And so what you end up with is you end up with things that are far less adorned, far less performative, far more, at least nominally real. So at least like that's an attempt yeah. at that. But I, I heard a great line. It's, it's it's totally like Mr. Rogers, Jack Handy, woo-woo kind of line. The other uh, couple couple of weeks ago um, from a guy who is a doctor who got this advice from his mentor like years ago. And he was saying it's like she said to him, his mentor, the guy's name is Bob. He said to him, Bob, like it's not going to work to compare your insides to other people's outsides. And I'm thinking, Wow. That's yeah, it's Mr. Great. Rogers, yeah. but it's probably right, <laughs> you know, because I think that's what we do. Yeah. We compare our insides. I feel shitty. I feel ashamed of myself. I feel inadequate. And I look at Rufus and Susan and they're gleaming and perfect. And I'm saying, oh my God, there must be something wrong with me. So, so young men and women out there, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. In fact, don't compare yourself yeah. to other people. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday and hope that you're a little bit better.
1: Well, and and the the being real impulse, though, I think sometimes each of us makes decisions to share things on social media that are, you know, to share regret, to share, you know, acknowledge loss and sorrow. Yeah. And and we also have we also have cultural moments where we acknowledge regret that we, as an institution or as a country, have done the wrong thing.
2: We're we're, we're fighting. It's a great point, Rufus. We're fighting that out right now. I live here, as you guys know, I I live here in Washington D.C. And Rufus is. Uh, boyhood town, hometown. And we, um, in Washington last year, we had, I think, one of the most incredible public art displays that I've ever seen. And that there were white flags arrayed on the mall representing each person who had died of COVID. And these white flags went on forever. And they were fluttering silently mm. in the gentle wind. And I think that's a way of bringing our sorrow To the surface, not hiding it, not wallowing in it, but acknowledging it and and honoring it. And when it comes to regret, I mean, we're fighting that out right now. We're fighting that out in, in school boards. We basically say, okay, we have this view. It's like, should we look backward and acknowledge our mistakes? No, we only look forward. We're only positive. This is a great country. Or do we look backward and say, oh, my God, we this country has some pretty messed up stuff, like pretty, pretty messed up things in our past does that yeah. dishonor it completely and stain it forever and make it irredeemable? No. My view is that we do with, collectively with regret. What we do individually with regret is that we look it in the eye, we confront it, we disclose it, we draw lessons from it, and we improve our behavior after that. And so I do think that there is. there is, And I think that actually should make us optimistic, that if we have a way collectively to deal with regret, a way collectively to deal with sorrow, that we're going to be better off as you know countries and communities.
1: You know, I think it could be useful to take a step back and tell you a little bit more about why we do what we do at the Next Big Idea Club. We do it because our lives have been transformed by books. Fresh ideas from the world's great thinkers we find both fascinating and useful. And yet we know that books can be really long. And we have limited time, we know that you're busy. There is a universe of brilliant ideas stuck in books trying to get out trying to get into your ears. So we created the Next Big Idea app, which delivers the key insights from the best new books directly into your ears in only 12 minutes from the authors themselves. This part is important. Other book summary apps summarize books without permission from the authors who deliver the heart and soul of these books. We want to give you the authentic article and we want to help authors succeed. We want their ideas to be discovered. And we hope that after downloading our app, you will also buy their books every time someone downloads our app and every time someone subscribes and joins our community it puts a bounce in the step of all of the nine amazing members of the next big idea club team guaranteed you subscribe and you will put a bounce in our step maybe two please join us just search for next big idea wherever you get your apps there is no better way to get smart fast and no better way to put a bounce in our steps. Download the next big idea app right now. My my last question for you too, if you have if you have an extra five minutes, is how have your books respectively changed you, uh, Susan? Are you listening to more or less minor key music <laughs> since writing Bittersweet? <laughs>
3: I would say the way that writing the book has changed me. I, I, I've I've just become much more attuned with how miraculous everything around us is, and that's what I, I I actually think like being able and willing to go into the excesses of joy and also our sorrows and longings, like to to be able to enter all those different emotional states that what it really does is just like open you up to the world. And so I feel that much more opened up to it. I guess I would also say one other thing that, um, some of the things that I wrote about, some of the difficult personal stuff that I wrote about, I I feel like I have reached an incredibly deep and unexpected place of equilibrium around Mm. those issues. And, you know, it's almost a, um, a cliche of like, well, you know, write it out and it'll be this great cathartic thing. And I never really believed that because it sounded just too good to be true, kind of too Mm. pat. But it actually has been deeply true for me and I think could be true for anyone. And I don't think it requires writing a whole book in order to work through whatever one's emotional tangles are. I I think it's more just a matter of like engaging with it in, in a deep way. And everybody's got their own path for doing that.
1: See that's so interesting because actually I think both of you talk about the power of journaling actually in your books and and the, the power of writing and of course writing yeah. a book is this sort of large scale exercise in that right and, and Dan I know from our conversation that you talked about broadening your definition of love and maybe befriending social awkwardness when necessary <laughs> like has that have you made concrete changes in your life as a result of the book.
2: I actually – I actually have on, on this book probably more than any other, partly because this is a book about emotions and it's – and emotions like we're, we're – you know, we're never – I never really thought <laughs> – never really thought that much about them or, you know, acted too deeply on on them. But, you know, there's – you can teach an old dog new tricks. So if you think about, once again, we talk about these different, you know, I talk about these different varieties of regret. And when it comes to connection regrets, which are people who have relationships, uh, friendships, whatever, that come apart, hey, should I reach out or should I not reach out? For me, I've totally changed my behavior on that, that when I reach a juncture and I'm asking myself, should I reach out to this person or should I not reach out to that person? Being at the juncture answers the question for me. I always reach out. And I found that I, like many people, was over-indexed on feelings of awkwardness. When we actually reach out, when we actually do a lot of things, it's far, far, far less awkward than we think. And when we reach out to other people and when we expand our notions of love to not only romantic love, but to just more like companionate love, like the love I have for my, my I have this group of, I think I talked to you about this, Rufus. I have this group of friends whom I've had for like almost 40 years. I mean, it's kind of amazing, like most of my life in a in a way. And it's like I I mean this is my I'm slow on the uptake, but I realize at a certain level, it's like I love these people. Like I I don't love them the way I love my wife, but I love them. There's a form of love and affinity there that needs to be honored and acknowledged and respected. And so for me, the connection regrets and pushing past the awkwardness has been a big change for me. It's and that's unusual for me because I'm like a somewhere between asocial and antisocial in those kinds of in those kinds of in those kinds of things. So I'm pushing past my my natural instincts. The other thing is this the overall decision making, um, and now I'll retreat into the safe harbor of being completely cerebral about something, which is that it's also the um the the decision making heuristics that I write about in the book, particularly the the de- when we're confronted with a decision, uh asking yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? It's the self-distancing as a decision-making heuristic. Uh, the business decision-making. When I think about my own business, I think about the Andy Grove heuristic of if I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do? Uh, and even the heuristic I write about where you actually try to have a conversation with yourself 10 years from now. Um, I was doing that yesterday. Jessica, my wife and I were out for a walk. And we were thinking about some aspects of our life. And 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 I was applying, okay, so like it's 10 years from now. What does the us of 10 years from now want us to do in this situation? So for me, yeah. more than the other books that I've written, you know, I have made like specific tactical concrete changes in my life as a consequence
3: of it. Wonderful. Hey, Rufus, can I add one, one thing to what I was saying before? Um, I, I just for pe- anybody who's listening, who's creatively oriented or anyone who's working through like some sort of emotional tangle in their own <laughs> lives. Like one, one of the things I say in the book is whatever pain you can't get rid of, Make that your creative offering. And yeah. that obviously applies for like conventional creative activities, you know, like writing a book or launching a business or whatever it is. But I define creatively pretty broadly. You know, there's a lot of different ways to take a pain and and convert it mm. into something else. And I think that this is something that humans are naturally predisposed to do to kind of make meaning out of. Out of difficulties. And like you see this, you know, after, after 9-11, suddenly there's a rash of people signing up to be firefighters. So they're actually like mm, moving in the yeah. direction of the trouble. Um, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, lots of people signing up for medical school and nursing school. Yeah. They're moving in the direction of the trouble, but what they're really doing is they're moving in the direction of making meaning of something that's been painful. This is what we do. So I had told you before that, you know, for me writing this book was that kind of an act, but there's a thousand and one ways to do it. And yeah, the, the biggest thing I found from like investigating this bittersweet, these bittersweet wisdom traditions and artistic and literary traditions that have existed across centuries and across the globe is this persistent idea of transforming pain into beauty. Like that's one of the best things humans are capable of.
2: So these are my Susan Kane bumper stickers for this conversation, if I can summarize. Number one, remember the wow. Number two, yes. move toward meaning.
1: And we can do it individually. We can do it collectively. Uh, with help from the great Dan Pink and the great Susan Kane. thank you guys so much uh, for being with us today. Um, that was uh, wonderful.
3: Thank you so much to the great Rufus Griscom for setting all of this up, everything upon which this interview stands. We so appreciate you.
1: I second that emotion. If you wanna hear more from Susan Cain and Dan Pink, and who wouldn't, then now is a great time to sign up for the next big Idea Club. In the coming weeks, every new member who signs up for a hardback subscription will receive signed copies of Susan and Dan's brand new books, and every member, period, will have a chance to participate in exclusive virtual Q&As with these legendary authors and to enroll in Dan and Susan's forthcoming e-courses, masterclasses on the key insights from their books. Right now, we're offering listeners of this podcast 20% off when they sign up for an express membership. Just use the code PODCAST20 at nextbigideaclub.com. That's PODCAST20 at nextbigideaclub.com for 20% off an express membership. If you enjoyed this, check out my individual conversations with Susan and Dan diving deep into their respective books earlier this year, two of my all-time favorites. If you like this show, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you love this show, then we'd be honored if you'd go the extra mile and leave us a review. It may not seem like much, but it really helps us get the word out. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat, sound design by Mike Toda. Thank you to the team at LinkedIn for helping us turn the pain we can't get rid of into a creative offering. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.